Well, good morning. It's nice to be with you today. We'll be taking a look at the Lord's Word from Jonah chapter 2. Jonah is one of the more unique prophets of the Old Testament. There's a lot of unique things about his book, and there's a sermon note page in your bulletin. It might help you to follow along with the sermon. Jonah is really an interesting character. He's someone who never changes. He remains static throughout the book. It's one of the smaller prophets of the 17 prophetical books that we have in the Old Testament. And he's writing in such a way that we see humor in it. It's actually a historical narrative satire. Now, satire has humorous effects because the character never acts as he's supposed to. And that's one of the reasons why you might like TV shows like MASH or The Office or Community. We see the characters never acting quite as they're supposed to. And so we will find Jonah in the belly of a large fish. The Hebrew says a ketos dag, which they didn't distinguish mammals. They didn't know that there were whales that had hair and produced their own offsprings, not through eggs, and who had to come up to the surface for air and didn't have gills. So to the Jewish people 2,800 years ago, it was a great big fish that swallowed him. And most likely, it was a whale that swallowed him for several reasons. So let's take a look at the scriptures that we have. Uh, the title of the sermon is, Grace Changes Everything. And here now from the word of the Lord. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Here ends the reading of God's word. May he apply it to our hearts and may we be transformed by it. Amen. One thing I want to just point out, we're going to talk about this text here. We see that God, prior to this, appointed a fish, a whale, to swallow him. And Jonah is experiencing grace in the stomach of this whale because when he was thrown into the waters, he was in a state of depression. He was depressed because he'd rather die than go preach to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians. And he was thrown into the water expecting to die because he didn't know how to swim. 2,800 years ago, they didn't have nice pools and cute little pool instructors that teach your kids how to swim. It was a certain death for him. And in the text here, we see that the roots or the seaweed was around his head. We'll get it. Verse 5, one of the big arguments against this story being a real story is there's no way he could survive in the stomach of a whale for three days. 
why would you put in here that seaweed was wrapped around his head? Now, imagine a short Jewish prophet with the beard, wearing the big cloak, stuck in the gut of a fish. It's kind of humorous. It's not where you expect the prophet to end up. And he's got seaweed wrapped around his head. This is comedic. But do you know what one plant on planet Earth that produces more oxygen than other plants? Seaweed. Where'd he get the oxygen for three days? Seaweed. What kept him from breathing in all the disgusting smells in the gut of that whale? Seaweed. It's always amazing how God provides his grace to us even in the places of our darkest times and where it seems like we have no other opportunities or chances. Let's be reminded of where Jonah went. He left Israel from Joppa. He probably got on a Phoenician boat and he was heading to Tarshish. No one really knows what Tarshish is. It could be Spain, it could be Cyprus, or it could be this paradise, this mystical paradise. But the point is, he was going as far away from God's plan for his life as he could. Jonah is a story about how to avoid doing what God wants you to do. And it's one of the reasons why I want to focus on Jonah chapter 2 is because we see in Jonah 2 and then also in chapter 4 the internal life and struggle of the prophet. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 focuses on his actions and his behaviors. Chapters 2 and 4 focus on the prayer life of, of the prophet, and we see what's going on in his soul. Next we see that he goes to Nineveh. Um, this is a town that was not discovered by archaeologists until 1854. And one of the interesting things is um, the, the, the academics and the unbelievers before 1854, when they wanted to disprove the Bible, they would say, you see, Jonah's just a bunch of made-up stories. There's no such place as Nineveh. And guess what they found in 1854, which sits right across the Tigris River from the city of Mosul, Iraq. They found Nineveh. And so if you want to be made a laughingstock, just say there's something about the Bible that's unreliable or not true because God will prove that his word is absolutely true. Now, it took him three days to go around the city. It turned out that Nineveh was one of the largest cities of the ancient world. Its walls that you see there were 100 feet high and 50 feet wide. This was a massive city. And so when it says it took him three days to go around the city and preach, it would take that long to get around this city. Now, when you think of the Assyrians, think Nazis, think ISIS, think of the most evil people on the planet. And the Assyrians were waging war with the ten northern tribes of Israel for a number of years, but in 780, roughly when we think this story occurs, there was a time of peace. But eventually in 722, Assyria consumes Israel, and so the story of of the prophet being in the belly of a beast is metaphorical of the fear that Israel had that they were going to be consumed by the Assyrian beast. We see that this is a whale of a tale. Unfortunately, when you think of the story of Jonah or most people, you think, oh, it's a story about a whale. Here's what I want you to leave today thinking when you think of the story of Jonah. Verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. When you think of Jonah, 
think that line. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, just to prove the point, whales do swallow men. That's a guy who got swallowed by a whale four months ago off the coast of Africa, South Africa. Um, there really are people who've been swallowed by whales, and they live to tell. So it is a miracle because God appointed the fish the other, or the whale. We also know that whales like to beach themselves. We also know that when a whale gets something in the first stomach of its four stomachs, that like a bird or something, it will spit it out. Okay, so everything that happened in this story is absolutely scientifically, biologically true of whales. How would the Jewish writers 2,800 years ago have known the biology of whales other than if the story came from the one who made the whale? The other thing that validates this story for us is that Jesus himself likens himself to the prophet Jonah. Of all the other prophets, Jesus doesn't liken himself. He says, this is a sign. And he says, in Matthew 12, he says, for a sign will not come to an adulterous generation. You see, the Pharisees are trying to pin him down. They're trying to test him. Herod does the same thing. Whenever you see scoffers in, in Jesus' ministry, they'll say things like, show us a sign, Jesus. What they're basically saying is, hey, show us a magic trick. Entertain us. And so that's why Jesus has a strong response here, because they're challenging his deity. And that's one thing you don't do. And so he says, you're a wicked generation. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's saying this. One, just as there was no escape for Jonah in the dark place of a fish, and he could not save himself, so too is with you, men and women, you cannot save yourself. And also, I too, you will know that I am the Lord because salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2.9, because I will go into the earth. But unlike Jonah who almost died, Jesus will die and he rose again. So Jesus is appealing to this story here that says it's, it, it should point to, it's a sign that Jesus Christ brings us redemption. Now, as we look at this prayer, and that's where I want to go now, I want to look at this prayer of Jonah, and, and try and put yourself in the belly of a whale 300 feet under the surface of the Mediterranean Sea. All right, what we see is this is when he prays this prayer in verses 4 through 9, he is at the bottom of the barrel. He has finally hit rock bottom in life. And the storyline has him going down. And anybody who's been in a state of depression, you feel like you're going down and down and down and down. And that it gets darker and darker. And there's no hope. There's no way out. And so in a lot of ways, the story of Jonah and the whale is metaphorical in a lot of ways to how we can feel when we're deeply saddened and when we're depressed in life. And so he goes down into Joppa, Joppa. He goes down into the ship, down into the water, down, 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 until he's finally in the pit. And this is where we find him. And the prayers and what he's saying here in Jonah chapter 2 and elsewhere in Jonah, he has read the Psalms. 
He knows the Psalms. They were written 150 years earlier. Listen to how David put it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right or righteous hand shall hold me. You see, no matter where you are, no matter where you go, God is present. He is the omnipresent God. There is no place that you are that He isn't, that He isn't standing ready to deliver you, that He is not standing there ready to show His grace to you. And so, it should encourage you that no matter what dark place you are in life, no matter what trial or storm or struggle that you are in, Jesus Christ is right there with you. Next we see, I want to go back. Here's the prayer again. And take verse 7. My, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. When you are in your darkest time, and I would even say this, even when you're in your happiest time, remember the Lord. If you want His grace, He's there. But He says, then He finally remembers Him. He finally came to the end of Himself. And so what does he say? He then says in verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, if you go and search all of the Bible translations, the NIV, 1984, the Holy Inspired translation is the only one who states it exactly like this. A pastor that I was working with 20 years ago quoted this. And I'd never heard it that way before because I always read it in the NAS or the New King James, and it caught me. This Bible verse right here, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I have been meditating on this for 20 years. It so struck me to my core. And if you get anything out of this 25, 30 minutes of this message today, I pray that you walk away with that. But this gives you something to actually meditate on, that you actually go, so what am I idolizing? Because you see this Bible verse here goes directly to Exodus 20 and the first two commandments. I am the Lord your God, commandment number one. Commandment number two, thou shalt have no idols before me, right? And what is the struggle of the human heart? We're constantly putting something of this world, something that we value here on earth before God. It doesn't just end when you come to Christ. It's all throughout your life. Calvin said that the heart is an ever-producing idol machine or factory. And so, I want you to take a look at what we mean by idols. Idols are not just, and this is in contrast to verse 15 of chapter 1, when those Phoenician sailors were putting out all their idols on the deck of the ship in the midst of the hurricane, thinking if they prayed to their false gods, they'd be saved. He's realizing, Jonah is, he the observant Jew, the prophet to the nation of Israel, the one who's memorized the Bible at the time, the one who speaks the Word of God to the king of Israel, he has idols. And it's his idolatry that's put him in the gut of this fish. A counterfeit God, a worthless idol, is anything so central and essential to your life that you should lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. 
An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family, kids, home, career, money, achievement, cars, acclaim, social standing, cars, romance, degrees, beauty, cars, brains, morality, or success in ministry. I have a problem with cars. Your heart says of your idol, when you have it, then you will feel significant and secure. No one has this problem in this room, do they? No one has this problem. And we learn this very early in life. And you know what? You never get over this. Now, I have a buddy, and he bought three years ago a really awesome supercar. I won't say what kind it is, but it was $200,000. He works from home. He put his computer on a desk in his garage that's right there next to the car. He has a million-dollar house, 5,000 square feet, but he sits in a non-air-conditioned garage right next to his awesome car. I won't tell you what kind of car it is, but it's a V10 and has 562 horses because these things actually matter. And he's taken me for rides in it. He hasn't let me driven it yet. One of these days he will, but here's the thing. After going for a ride in it, you know what my attitude was? Glad that's over with. I rode in a supercar. It's pretty awesome. But you know what? I don't need it in my garage. And so, you know how many miles he's put on the car in three years? 200. 200. He sits there next to it every day doing his work. I said, you know, this is kind of an idol for you. He goes, I know. I just kind of, I just kind of have to have it. I just kind of have to be here with it. Right? It has to give you that sense of significance. Here's what happens with your idols. If you cling to them, you will forfeit the grace of God that could be yours. Now, here's the first thing I want you to think. There may be some of you here in this church that you haven't ever followed Christ and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Okay, you need to understand that you're living an idolatrous life and that what you really need is Jesus in the center of your life. To those of you who've been walking with Christ for a long time, because of your idols, you forfeit so much grace in your own Christian walk. This is a Bible verse, not just for somebody else. This is a Bible verse for you. And so what happens when we cling too tightly to our idols, it creates pain in our life. Right? I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jonah is feeling all kinds of pain. He feels like he's going down into the depths because, partly because the pressure of 300 feet of water above him is pressing in on him. He's feeling like he's dying. He is, right? And the pain that we get in life from our idols, because here's what's going to happen. Whatever idol you have in life, it's going to fail you. That's what idols do. They will eventually fail you because they cannot make you feel significant or secure. They can't answer all of your problems. What you need is grace. What is grace? Let me explain it this way. This is how a professor from Westminster Seminary, Jack Miller, explained it. He said, cheer up. You're worse off than you can imagine. Jonah's a worse sinner than he thought. Jonah thought he was a very righteous man. He was righteous to hate the Assyrians. They were Nazis. 
They were radical Muslim terrorists. They were worse than that. They impaled people. They skinned people alive. He was righteous. They were Gentiles. God's only concerned about the people of God. His ethnocentrism, his self-righteousness put him into this desperate situation. He's, he realized there in the belly of the whale that he's worse off than he ever imagined. And you need to realize that too. Your sin is far worse than what you can imagine. And you're more offensive to God than you realize. Okay? That's the bad news of the gospel. Now cheer up for the good news. You're more loved by your heavenly Father through Jesus Christ than you could ever dream. Try and dream the greatest love, and His love for you exceeds that. You cannot possibly imagine the grandeur of His love that He would send His only Son into this world to save you from your sin. He loves you that much that He would sacrifice what is most precious to Him, our Heavenly Father, His very own Son. And so, grace we find makes beautiful things out of our ugliness. So it's a great quote from my favorite rock band. But do you believe that? In the pit of your despair, in the pit of things in your life that are ugly, do you think that God in His grace can make it beautiful? And that's grace, is to believe God that He can redeem anything. Some of you may not realize it, but in France right now, for this whole month, there's guys on bicycles riding all over. They call it the Tour de France. And this is Lance Armstrong. He won it seven times. I loved Lance Armstrong. One, because he was a Texan, and he showed up all those Europeans for seven years in a row. And he was an American. He was awesome. His wife, Kristen, married him before he got famous. And she committed herself to be a wonderful wife. That was her priority. She's a UT grad. You can tell she's lovely. But in 2003, Lance decided that he wanted to run off with Cheryl Crow, the rock star, and left her behind with three kids. It was devastating and humiliating for her. And she had set up an idol of being the good and perfect wife. It didn't work out. And so here's what she says. All suffering is redemptive if we keep our hearts open to God. And while it may look different in everyone's life, just as every trial in everyone's life looks different, it's a different flavor, but it's essentially the same thing. You know, I love this little Texas girl attitude here in describing suffering. Yeah, you know, it's like bluebell ice cream. It's just a different flavor. It's still ice cream. She's cute, but she's right on the money. She's incredibly profound. She speaks today at women's conferences, like the IF conference, and she says, when you come to the end of yourself, God's grace is all that sustains, and it's enough. Are you at that place where you realize that God's grace is enough? God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is all there is. God's presence is what you need. What you need is the atoning work of Jesus. Here's how you apply it to your life. And this is where the wheels typically fall off for most, follow, for most followers of Christ. Because what we want to do is turn it into a religion. We want to turn it into human effort. You see, this is part of the storyline of Jonah and the belly of the whale. He can't save himself. You know, I love watching those survivor-type um, stories. 
You remember Bear Gryllis and they would throw him into you know, some terrible place and he'd get out of there. Well, this is a place that you can't get out of. If, even, if, even if Jonah could get out of that first sack of his, the, the first stomach and get through the esophagus and beat on, his, on the whale's tongue and the whale would vomit him out, he'd still be 200 feet underwater. He'd be crushed by the pressure. He wouldn't be able to make it to the surface. Even if he was smart enough to get to the surface, he couldn't swim. And he was miles out. The guy had a death sentence. The point here is human work does not work. Salvation is from God. And you have to get that firmly planted in your head. And you have to meditate on that. Salvation is of the Lord. I can't save myself. I can't save somebody else. But the Lord can. For with God, all things are possible. And so religion, when you hear the word religion, just think advice. I don't care if it's Buddhism, I don't care if it's Islam, I don't care if it's Judaism, I don't care what ism, I don't care if it's a type of Christianity that they've turned it into a religion. All religion is advice. It says that you follow these rules, you'll please God, and you'll have better standing with God. It's all on you. It's all human effort. It takes the focus on your morality, your virtue your human work. Don't fall into that trap. That is not grace. And see, God had a plan to kill religion. Romans 8.3, he says, God has done what the law, religion, weakened by the flesh, could not do. See, once again, Paul's saying that this theme keeps reoccurring throughout the Bible. You can't save yourself. Religion is a human work. So God had to send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? Jesus became incarnated, and he died for sinful flesh, and he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Meaning the whole thing is that we would have righteous standing with God. That's what religion does. It tries to tell you you can work and get enough righteous standing with God, but the gospel says this, you're, you're a miserable, rotten sinner. And it's by sheer grace that God brings you into his presence. And he does that through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, you were far from God, and it is the blood of Jesus that's brought you. It's sheer grace. Now, let me, let me just focus on the right side here. Grace is given to sustain us. Grace isn't like a one-time deal. It's like the manna in the Exodus. You need it every day. Every day, you need to fill yourself with God's grace. Here's what the Apostle Paul says, very similar to the experience of Jonah on the right side of your screen. It says, the affliction we experienced in Asia, this is Paul writing, made us utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Is that not the story of Jonah? Is that not the story of the depressed? Is that not the story of the grieved person? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, religion, human effort, human work, but on God. And what does God do? He raises the dead, right? That's why Jesus says the sign to you is is Jonah. You will see that I can raise myself from the dead because that's what God does. And God can raise you from whatever deadly experience you find yourself or an experience that feels like death. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that, we, that he will deliver us again and again and again. 
you will find one difficult episode after another in this human life. And each time and each thing you go through in this life, you need to go through it by the sustaining hand of God's grace. By His grace. Now let's just ask a few questions. What troubles and storms are you experiencing that you see God's grace? Jonah was stripped of all of his moral superiority. He was dying in the belly of that whale. What sense of superiority and entitlement do you have? Do you carry about yourself? What do you need to confess to the Lord? Is the Lord trying to strip you of your self-righteousness? Is there some way that he's trying to get your attention? Right? Think of Kristen Armstrong. She was doing everything she could to be the best wife. Are you trying to be the, the best dad? Are you trying to be the best employee? Are you trying to make the most money? Where are you striving in your life? And does God want to strip you of those desires and have you put your desires completely on him and his grace and to walk more by his grace? And here's the thing. What you can do, point number three here, just talk to him, right? Every day, put the things of your heart, number four there, on the altar before the Lord. Say, Lord, what things am I living for? Where are my misoriented priorities? You know, here's one thing that I find people who are going through a hard time, people who are slightly depressed, they still cling to their own self-righteousness. Their life can be going completely, they could be completely miserable. And they'll say things like, well, I don't have anybody's respect. People don't listen to me. I don't have that many friends. But then when you tell them maybe they could do something to change, they go, nah, <laughs> nah. <laughs> Point is, they aren't giving up their pride. Your pride is your biggest idol. You think you know what's right, and you're unwilling to listen to others. And when you're unwilling to listen to others, you're not listening to God either. I can guarantee that. So every day, put that before the Lord. Lord, where am I not listening to you? Lord, where am I running from your will? Where am I ignoring your will? Have that conversation, right? Because he who calls out to me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And live your life as a response to Christ and His grace. In a moment here, the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing to God's grace. We're going to sing how the Lord has, has removed bonds from us, how He has um, released us from things. And here's the thing. He may have released you from a great deal of things. He may need to continue to release you from a great many things in your life. And maybe you're out there and you've never felt the presence of God's grace, you've never felt the release, and you still feel like you're in the belly of the whale, you need to pray to Him and ask Him to remove you from, from that state. If you ask the Lord Jesus, He will come. He will answer. He will lift you up. He will give you new life. He'll turn things around for you. Let us all stand now and sing to God's marvelous grace. <laughs>